0: Well, good morning again, everyone. I want to begin this morning by looking at our next text in Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter five. And we've been going, if you know, if you're here, you know this, but if you're visiting with us, we've been going verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. And today we come to Matthew chapter five and verse 31. Matthew 5.31 says this, our Lord is preaching in the Sermon of the Mount, and He says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery adultery. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know that Jesus has been quoting from the Old Testament, from the law of Moses, and then he gives, in each case, he gives his own declaration of what his disciples are called to in regards to righteousness. Some say that he's giving the true interpretation of the law, that, that interpretation of the law that was inherent and inside of the law already. Others kind of understand this, that, that he is going beyond the law in some way and calling us to a, a higher and, and better righteousness than the Old Testament law prescribed. Jesus is the one, as we've seen, who fulfills the law And however we understand the specifics of this, as the fulfiller of the law, He is calling us as His disciples to a righteous and holy life. You see, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I I keep repeating this verse, but this is such a crucial verse for us to understand this section. Matthew 5 and verse 20. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so our righteousness, our day-to-day living according to God's holy standard must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The the righteousness that they had seems to be merely an external kind of a righteousness. It wasn't anything to do with the internal person of their hearts. And Jesus says our obedience to God's law, our righteousness is a righteousness that flows from our hearts. The true disciple obeys God in the heart and from the heart because he or she has a changed heart. They're a a transformed person if you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And in verses 31 and 32, the verses I just read, we can really see where the religious hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees had, had really gone astray. See, the Old Testament law didn't command or legislate or authorize divorce. The law that, that Jesus quotes from is in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24 assumes that divorce would happen, but it's more of a warning about divorce than it is permission for it. But by Jesus' day, most of the rabbis understood it as a command. The majority school taught that divorce and remarriage was allowed for any reason whatsoever. John MacArthur says, quote, By that period of Jewish history, divorce had become so easy and casual that a man could dismiss his wife for such trivial things as burning his meal or embarrassing him in front of his friends. Often husbands did not bother to give a reason since none was required End quote. And so all that was required was, according to Deuteronomy 24 and the the Jewish interpretation of that day, all that was required was a certificate of divorce. A minority school taught that divorce and remarriage was permissible only in the case of adultery. Now, it doesn't really matter for us so much what the Jews of Jesus' day taught. We need to know what is Jesus' teaching. What does our Lord say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? And that's what we're going to do in this little series as we kind of look at this in more detail. But as we do that, I want you to turn right now to Matthew chapter 19 where we get a little bit more detail about this. Matthew chapter 19, and we'll start reading at verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have, made, have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And so the Pharisees, they, they came to Jesus in verse 3, and, and they came with this test, and, and the test was based really on the debate that was going on in Jesus' day, was divorce permissible for any cause, or only on the, the grounds of adultery? And that was really the, the two views. The majority position in Jesus' day was that divorce was permissible for any cause, And another school taught that divorce was only permissible on the grounds of adultery. But Jesus, he takes them back to the beginning, and he takes them back even before the law, and he takes them to God's original design for marriage. And it seems that this is where he wants his disciples to be focused as well, on God's original design for marriage. You see, we're not so focused as, as Jesus' disciples, we're not so focused on what we can get away with without sinning. Our focus as disciples of Christ is what most pleases and honors the Lord. You see, Jesus wants us to honor and uphold what God has done in our marriage. God has joined two people together in marriage, and that union should not be broken by men. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were more concerned with the legitimate grounds for divorce than they were with keeping the covenant of marriage. And the same thing can really happen to us. We, we can get very focused on when divorce and remarriage is allowed, and we can lose sight on God's intention for marriage. There's a, a debate in, in, I don't know, the evangelical world, in the Christian world, on Divorce and remarriage. Good and godly men differ on when or even if divorce is permitted. And good and godly men differ on whether or not remarriage is permitted after divorce in certain cases. And it'd be easy for us, and I think it could be very easy for me to kind of get fixated on, on that and on, on that debate and getting the right answer there. And, and what we could do by doing that is we could lose the, the, the big picture of what marriage is intended to be. Now, when we understand the original design of marriage and what it is and what it points to then the whole divorce and remarriage issue, I think what we'll find is it it actually becomes very minor. It's a very, very minor difference. But the question for a disciple of Jesus Christ is not, is it lawful for me to get a divorce? The question is is more something like this, how can I honor God in my marriage? Or another question that I I think I want to try to answer as we go through this series is, what can I do? This is what we should be asking ourselves. Not, is it lawful to get a divorce, but what can I do to tell the truth about God and the gospel in my marriage? What can I do to tell the truth about God and the gospel in my marriage? Now, That question might not even make sense to you right now, but I hope by the time we're through this series and even as we even get through this morning's message, I hope that that question will make sense. What can I do to tell the truth about God and the gospel in my marriage? And so what I want to do over the next number of weeks is I want to kind of break off of our series in Matthew and I want to spend a few weeks and I want to look at marriage. I want to look at what does the Bible say about marriage. When we understand marriage, we'll be much more equipped to understand what, if anything, can separate a marriage. And to do this right, what we need to do is we need to follow Jesus's method and go back to the beginning. And what we're going to do today, and again for the next couple of weeks, is we're going to, we're going to do things a little bit differently than we normally do here. Normally, we look at one text of Scripture, and we study what that text says. And we go verse by verse, section by section, and we look to understand and apply the meaning of those verses. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the topic of marriage. We're going to look at what the Scriptures teach about marriage. And I want to talk just a little bit about the method that we're going to use in this next couple of weeks because I want you to know that this is okay. That what we're going to do is we kind of look at a topical series on marriage. This is okay. Now our church is committed to verse by verse what we call expository preaching expository preaching and expository preaching is made up of two words expository expository is means that the preaching that we try to do on Sunday mornings here is is exposing what's in the text right I show you what's in the text and I try to expose what is there and when we do that, we explain the text. Whoever's preaching in this pulpit, typically we, we're we trying to explain the text and explain what it means. I explain the words and I explain the sentences and I unpack the meaning of the text. Now the other word in expository preaching is preaching. I'm not teaching a lecture up here, hopefully, although sometimes I, I kind of tend towards more being in, in a lecture format, but preaching means that I'm taking the meaning of the text and I'm communicating it to you. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to see what's in the text and then I'm trying to get you to believe it, to obey it, to follow it, to heed it, right? to, to take the warning seriously, to, to apply the teaching of that text, to believe the promises in those texts. And so that's what I'm typically doing. Preaching means I'm trying to get you to apply the meaning of the text into your life. Now, usually, the best way to do expository preaching is to go verse by verse, line by line, through a book of Scripture. And that way, we follow the argument of a book. Whatever the book of Scripture we're looking at, we try to follow the argument of that book. And, and that way, I don't choose the topics that I just like teaching and preaching about. We need to hear what God says in his word, not just what, what I like to talk about, or on the other hand, not just what you might like to listen to, or what I th- might think you like to listen to. So so that's why going verse by verse is kind of the safest way to do this. But, and, and this is really important, you can, listen, you can preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, and you cannot do expository preaching. You can go verse by verse through the Bible and you can, and if somebody is doing that, but they're not drawing out from the text the meaning of the text, it isn't expository preaching. If they're not drawing the meaning of that text out in its context, it's not expository preaching. They're not doing biblical preaching. You know, sometimes somebody can go verse by verse through a book and and just give rambling thoughts on a text in scripture. That's not expository preaching. And that's not good preaching. Sometimes you can go verse by verse through a, a book of the Bible and give a, a kind of running commentary on, on what you, you see in the text. A, a running commentary on the verses. That's not expository preaching either. Preaching is, is again, expository preaching means taking the meaning of a text or texts and Preaching the meaning of those to others to convince them of the meaning so that they can apply it properly to their lives. Okay, so that's what we normally do here, but we're, we're doing a little bit different. We're gonna to do topical, but I'm still gonna be drawing the meaning of the scriptures from their context, and we're looking at scriptures, in this case, that talk about marriage. And so hopefully that you can see that and see what we're doing here. Uh, a topical message must draw the truth from the passages that we're looking at according to their contexts. And, and I don't know, hopefully that's kind of helpful for you. I think it's important that you know what we're trying to do and, uh, and what, what you should be trying to do as well during the preaching time. Now, I just want to say one more thing about preaching. I feel like I haven't done this and maybe should have done this earlier. But one more thing about preaching. Your job, right? You have a job during this time. Your job during the preaching is to think about how to apply the truth of that passage to your life. Your initial job is to just kind of look and see if what I'm saying is indeed what the passage or passages that we are looking at teach, right? So your job is first to say, is what Pastor Mike's preaching, is that actually come from the Bible? Does the, does the Word of God actually say that? That's your kind of first job is like a discernment job. Am I actually preaching what the Bible says? Your second job, the second part of your job is if I am preaching what the Bible says, then your job is to think about how can I apply the truth of that passage to my life? How can I believe those promises? How can I uh, avoid those warnings? How can I implement those commandments in my life? If the passage highlights a particular sin, we as God's people are called to avoid that sin. We're called to flee from it, repent of it if it's in our life. And so our job as the listener, or your job as the listener, is to seek to apply the truth to your life. Now, the truth that we're going to study for the next couple of weeks is the truth about marriage, now, there, for those of us especially who are married, there's probably no more applicable area of our lives that we could talk about. If you're not married, though, this, this might be something that you will enter into one day, and so this will be helpful for you as well if you're not married at the present time. You know, you need to know about marriage so that you can think about it properly and prepare to enter into it if that's something that God has for you. And even if you're not married and and never will be, there is something in the topic of marriage that will apply for you, because the reality of marriage between a man and a woman is designed by God to declare a message about God and the gospel. And God and the gospel is really applicable to every one of us and our lives. And so today, as we kind of Begin into this. What I, what I've done is I want to just make three observations about marriage. Three observations about marriage. And we're really going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to Genesis and look at what God says about marriage. Now, these observations are very simple, but, but I, I hope they'll be helpful for those who are married. Do you know? that the Bible begins with a marriage, right? In the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve were married by God. And remarkably, and this is really cool, the Bible actually ends with marriage as well. In Revelation chapter 21, we see the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, And so the Bible both begins and ends with marriage. And this shows us the importance of marriage in God's eyes. Marriage is something that was designed by God. It's something that is done by God. And it's something that is designed and done by God in order to declare the glory and His glory in salvation. And because of that, marriage is one of the most significant things that we can study. And so three observations again, three observations about marriage, and they're going to be this, and really we're we're mostly going to focus on the first one today. Marriage is something designed by God. Then secondly, we're going to see marriage is something that God does. And then thirdly, we're going to see that marriage is something that God declares. And so God is doing something, God has designed this thing, and then God is declaring something about the gospel and about Christ and his church. And so number one, marriage is something that God designed. Marriage is something that God designed. You, you know, a lot of people think that marriage is a human idea. That, that marriage is simply a human institution. Many think that marriage is an outdated human institution at that. That, that it's something that should be done away with in our modern times. Many people today want to change marriage to include something else. They want, to, they want to change it. They want to change its God-given design. They want to broaden the definition of marriage to include what is not marriage. Others want to get rid of marriage altogether, but marriage is not a human idea. Marriage is designed by God. God designed marriage and God owns marriage. Again, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That verse there in Matthew 19 verse 5, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's actually from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And that's the most quoted verse in the Bible on marriage. And so if you've got your Bible here with me, uh, go ahead and turn. And we're going to start this morning in Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back to creation and read what he who created them, male and female, said in the beginning. And so starting at verse Male and female, he created them. And so we see here that God made man. That is, God made Mankind and, and he made mankind in his image we 've been made like God in some unspecified way. What, what it exactly means to be like God, what what part of us is exactly like God scripture doesn 't necessarily say, but we 've been made like God in some unspecified way. And we're also made, according to this text, in the image and the likeness of God. We're, we're made to represent God in this world as his image bearers. That's what it means to be made in the likeness of God. It means that we represent God in this world that he created. And as his representatives, we were called in the original creation to exercise a dominion over creation. We were to have dominion over all the rest of creation. And notice that only mankind was made in the image of God. Man was made higher than the animals and the plants and everything else that was made. To view then animals or fish or creeping things above man is really to rebel against the design of our Creator. Now, this is very, very common today that, that people deny man's special place in creation. And when they do that, it's both harmful and sinful. Notice too, in verse 27, that God made both male and female. Both male and female were created in the image of God. And God here shows us that he made gender male and female. That's something that is designed by God. And really, it's almost ridiculous to have to say this. But we need to say this because people are running headlong into rebellion against God and even denying that God made gender, that God made people man and woman. He made men and women. He made male and female. And he made them both as image bearers. They both represent him in the world. They're both, they both bear the image of God. And so they're the same in that way. Both men and women are image bearers of God. Men and women are equally image bearers of God. But men and women are also different. Men and women are what we would say objectively different. Men and women are not subjectively different, right? Men, men and women, it, it's, it doesn't matter how I feel, right? That, that's what subjective is. It, it doesn't have anything to do with my feelings. I am male because God made me that way. I'm male because I've been born male. It's not something that we feel. It's something that is objectively true about us. You can look at me and you can see if you're not insane or denying or suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, you can see that I'm a male. You can look at Jody and say, that is A female. It's something that's objectively true. It doesn't matter how we feel about it. And again, just that I even have to say that in a series on marriage just shows the insanity of the sinful rebellion of this world against God and His design that that we would even need to argue this point. But there is male. And female. And they're similar in that they're both made in the image of God. They're equal in worth, equal in value, equal in their being, but they're different in gender, different in purpose, different in role, different in function. And this comes out more in Genesis chapter two. And this really is foundational for marriage. Genesis chapter two then kind of comes along and and fills out some additional details about man and the creation of man that wasn't expressed in chapter 1. And so if you look at chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground." Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And so here in Genesis 2, 5 to 8, we see the creation of man woman has not yet been made just the man is made at this time and then look at verse 15 then the Lord the the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it and the Lord commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree in the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, as has often been pointed out, verse 18 is the first thing in creation that God says is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, we want to just kind of pause here and and note a couple of things. First of all, In God's world, who has the prerogative to decide what is good, right? In God's world, God has the prerogative. God is the one who declares what is good. God is the creator, and so he is obviously the one who decides what is good in his world. And God himself is the standard of the good. He is the designer, now, now. Secondly, when we think about this in the context of Genesis one and two, when did God declare that His creation was good? Do you remember in Genesis chapter one when God declared His creation was good? If if we've been reading through Genesis, we'd kind of see a a pattern so far to this point in Genesis. Something was was spoken into being by God. God speaks and something comes into being. And and God says something like, let there be such and such. And then just by simply speaking that thing, it comes in to being. And so God says, let there be such and such, whether it's light or animals or whatever it is. And that thing immediately comes into being. And then it always says, and then God saw that it was good. And sometimes there's a, a further description after God speaks something into being. There's a, a further description of what He made. And, and then there's another, and God saw that it was good. And then it says, every time it says, and then there was evening and there was morning the, the first day. or And then there was evening and morning the second day, the third day, and so on. Now what I want you to see then is that that whatever is is good in chapter 1, is always tied in every case to God completing one aspect of his creation. And so when man is alone and it's not good, it probably has to do with an incomplete day of work in God's mind. God, God is not done with making mankind. He needs to make a helper for him. Richard Caldwell Jr., who I would recommend as a preacher, really appreciate his preaching and teaching. He said on this passage, he said that we tend to psychologize texts, right? And we tend to to psychologize these texts and kind of read a lot about the psychology of man into the statement that it is not good for man to be alone. But if we think about that a little bit more deeper there were single men in the Bible and God doesn't say that that was not good for them. And so not good, I think it's best to see not good in this text, meaning something is not complete. Man needed woman to be a complete species. And so God makes, quote, a helper fit for him. One who corresponds to him. That's the idea there. One who corresponds to him. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. One who is suitable to him, like him, but different than him. But before God makes the woman, before God makes this helper, he puts Adam through an object lesson and he shows the man all the animals and Adam names them all. Now, God could have created Adam and Eve at the exact same time, and he could have made them at the exact same time, and he could have made them one flesh. But he didn't choose to do it that way. He knew, obviously, God knew that none of the animals were suitable helpers for Adam. And so what's this all about where, where Adam names all the animals? Actually, let's just read that. Um, Genesis 2 and verse 19. Now, object lesson. And so what, what's this all about? Well, by naming all the animals, God is showing Adam and he's showing us through Adam the headship of man, the dominion of man over the animals. He's showing also the uniqueness of human nature over the animals. It's also a demonstration to Adam as as God now in verse 21 makes Eve, it's a demonstration to Adam of the uniqueness of Eve. She is literally his flesh, and they are literally one flesh together. Now notice how Adam was made before Eve, and then Adam actually goes ahead and, and he names Eve as well. And so we could continue reading in verse 21, or just at the end of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. That Adam named womankind, he named that, that the gender that we call woman, he named her woman. And then if you just kind of flip over to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, we see that Adam also named this woman Eve. And so the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And so Adam, was made before even Adam even names her just like he named all the animals. Now, the, the apostle Paul is going to argue from this, this priority of creation that man was made first. The apostle Paul is going to argue that God has designed men to be head or to be the, the leader, both in the family and in the church and we could say in society in general, man was made by God to be the leader, the head. Uh, men were made to lead and women were made to help. And, and all of this happens before the fall, before sin has entered into the world. Now this woman that, the, and, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about role and function and all of that as we kind of go further into our series. But I just wanted to, to note that for now. Now th- this woman, that God has created out of Adam's rib is perfectly suited to Adam. She comes from him. And, and the animals, they were different than him, but she is like him. And when the Lord made the woman, he, it says there that he brought her to the man, verse 22, and, and he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And what this is, In verses 22 to 24, this is the first wedding. This is the creation of woman and the first giving of the bride. And so God literally gives this woman that he made to Adam as his wife. God made the woman for the man and he brought them together. And again, we see then from this that this is God's design. There's nothing like this. There's no marriage like this for the animals. God has designed this specifically for his image bearers, men and women. And so again, verse 23, then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Verse 23 gives us the literal situation with the first wedding, the, the woman and the man were literally one flesh. And verse 24 is now the Lord's word through Moses about all future marriages for all of mankind. Therefore, because of what God had done in this first wedding, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now there's three verbs in verse 24 a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become they shall be or, or even they are in that moment they are one flesh and that is marriage those three verbs describe Marriage. In, in seminary, we kind of learned a, a, a rhyming thing that, that kind of goes with verse 24. The man shall leave, the man shall cleave, and the, the two shall weave. They shall, their, their lives shall intermesh. They are, they become one flesh. And so leave, cleave, and weave. And this is God's design for marriage. This is the most quoted verse on marriage in the entire Bible. And this is really the foundation for it all. Now it says there that a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now this this leaving doesn't mean that, that this man never talks to his parents or that he's mean to his parents, but there's a, a separation from the relationship with the parents so that the man and the woman now form this the primary relationship. The, the primary relationship of these two people is not with their parents anymore, it is now with their spouse. There's a a break from the parental relationship and the new couple forms a family of their own. And we're going to talk about that more when we come to this idea of one flesh and what that means. But the the first verb there is that the man shall leave his father and his mother. And of course, that applies as well to the woman in the marriage. The, The second verb there is, and it says, and he shall hold fast to his wife. The New American Standard and some other translations have be joined to his wife. And that verb there, that word means to cling to or to stick to, to, to hold to. And this word, this, this, this clinging to, holding fast word is where we get the idea that marriage is a covenant. Have you, have you heard this covenantal language in marriage that marriage is a covenant, and we often use that in our weddings. It comes from this word, this idea of holding fast. Now, let me just show you some places where this word is used, and we'll turn to the book of Deuteronomy, because we see that this, this covenantal language, this holding fast language in marriage, is also the same kind of thing that we do when we enter into covenant, or at least when Israel entered into covenant with Yahweh, they were called to cling to him, to hold fast to him. They were to hold fast to the Lord. And so Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, says this, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear there it is hold fast and swear and by his name you shall swear deuteronomy 11:22 also has this word it says for if you will be careful to do all this commandment that i command you to do loving the lord your god walking in all his ways and holding fast to him and hold fast holding fast to him deuteronomy 13 and verse Four, we see that word again. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. What a, see the, the synonyms that are kind of coming together, fearing him, keeping his commandments, serving him, holding fast to him. Again, and, and you don't need to turn to all of these if you don't want. Deuteronomy 30 verse 20, it says, loving the Lord, the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. But, but there's that word again, holding fast. Or Joshua 22 verse 5 says, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord, your God, and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him. That's that word there again, to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Joshua 23, verse eight, but you shall cling to the Lord, your God, just as you have done to this day. And again, in Second Kings 18 verse6, "For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following Him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses." Do you see this? What's happening here? In the same way that we are to hold fast to Yahweh and to love him and to obey him and to keep his commandments. This is all covenant language. And we're also in that same way to hold fast to our wives or to our husbands. Marriage is a commitment between one man and one woman. It's a covenant commitment. It's a formal and a binding commitment. It's a, a covenant. It's a promise to hold fast to that person. And, and that covenant commitment is until death do us part. Or as long as we both shall live. That's what marriage is. A, an agreement to hold fast to that person in marriage. Let me read to you the, the marriage vows that I used. And these are largely based on, on really universal vows, but these are kind of specifically designed and crafted for the Christian. But this is the, the kind of vow that you would have made if you were married. We would repeat after me, and I, and I would say, and, and have the couple repeat, I take you to be my wedded wife, or to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward. To share with you God's plan for our lives. United in Christ. And here's the the part that that we typically hear in, in all wedding vows. United in Christ for better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish according to God's word so long as we both shall live. All these things I pledge to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is a typical covenant commitment that we make in marriage. And this commitment is made typically in a wedding ceremony before a a number of witnesses. But the chief witness in a wedding is God Himself. A, a, A marriage is done before God Himself. And God Himself acts as we'll see in a moment that he does something when this covenant is entered into and he holds us accountable for any violation to that covenant now I want to show you then what God does when a man and a woman leave their father and their mother and and hold fast to each other but before I do I I just want to say one more thing here as we think about what is God's design for marriage this marriage covenant, this marriage covenant, this trumps everything. It, it really supersedes everything else in your life except God himself. And what we'll see in the weeks to come is that, that marriage is a commitment to love the other person. It's a commitment to love the other person in sickness or in health, whether it makes you richer or poorer, whether it's better for your life or whether it's worse for your life, whether whatever else it might happen in your life, this commitment that is made before God really trumps everything else. And for the husband, it's a call to, to love his wife, even as Christ loved the church. It's a, a vow and a commitment to do that. And for the husband, or sorry, for the wife, it's a, a call and a vow and a commitment to submit to and respect your husband, even as the church does Christ. And so what I want you to see is that marriage, as it is designed by God, is a promise to love no matter how you feel. It's a promise to love no matter how you feel. Now, love isn't a feeling, and we've probably talked about that before. We, we've kind of romanticized love in our culture and in our day. Now love, it, there is, there are feelings in love, but love is more than a feeling. It's an action. It's a commitment to, to serve that other person and to benefit that other person. And so marriage is a promise to love no matter how you feel. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. He said, quote, and this is in the context of the the wedding ceremony he He would say quote, "It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. In other words, again it 's a, a promise to love, no matter how you feel, it 's a, a commitment, a vow, a covenant to love that other person." As long as you both shall live. That's God's design for marriage. Male and female. And there's this leaving and there's this cleaving entering into covenant. And now we'll see number two. And we're, we're just going to only just really touch on the next two points. Number two, marriage is something that God does. Marriage is something God does. What does he do? Well, God designed marriage and, and he is involved in marriage. He's involved in every marriage, whether it's for a believer or an unbeliever, whether that marriage is in the church or outside of the church, whether it's affirmed by the government or in some countries not affirmed by the government, whatever, whatever the case, whatever the kind of marriage, God is involved in that marriage, as long as it's a man and a woman who are are leaving and cleaving and committing to one another God is involved, and God works in marriage, and what he does is described in the the third verb that we see in Genesis 2.24, where it says there that the two, or they, shall become one flesh. They shall become the two, male and female, as Jesus put it in Matthew 19. And actually, go ahead and and turn with me to Matthew 19. The, The two there, they shall become one flesh. Now, in the ESV, this kind of sounds like a, a future event. But we already saw that Adam and Eve were one flesh already because God had made them one. And he does the same. God makes the, 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 the husband and the wife one for every married couple. The Hebrew of Genesis 2.24 indicates that they, they enter into this state of one flesh. And they now are one flesh, when, when this leaving and cleaving happens, they become one flesh. God makes them one. And so again, Matthew 19, look at verse four. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two. But one flesh. And then he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now notice again that Jesus specifically says male and female when he talks about Genesis chapter two. And then, then see that the two become one flesh. And, and this action is attributed not to them, right? It's not something that, that they do. It's not about their commitment, but this is something that God does. God has joined them together, and now, therefore, they are not to be separated. They do the leaving of their parents. They do the cleaving and enter into covenant together. But God is the one who then joins them together. And so God is the one who holds marriages together. And so we want to ask ourselves then, well, what does it actually mean to be one flesh? What does it mean for a husband and a wife to be one flesh? Let me tell you what it's not. First of all, it's not. It's not simply that the new couple are now becoming one, although that happens. But it's more than that. This is not a state of becoming in the Hebrew. This is a state of being that they enter into. And so although there's a sense in which a husband and wife grow together and come to know each other and, and, and their lives merge together. That's not what it means to become or to, to be one flesh. It's more than merely the physical intimacy that usually occurs in marriage. The, the one flesh idea is, goes beyond simply physical intimacy. What it, what it means then to be one flesh is that it means that the two become one family unit. They become One family and a a new family is formed by God in this marriage. They become, we could say it this way, they become related to one another. They become uh, like a, a blood relation, and wherever you see one flesh and and one bone, or you are flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, the idea there is that that there is that these people, whoever it's talking about, are related a, as family. And so, if you can if you can see this, the the marriage union is the highest, closest family relation. Marriage then is, is God creating a new family unit. And, and I think this is where a lot of people misunderstand marriage because I think a lot of people in their minds would think something like this, that, that they are closer to their kids than they are to their spouse. But that's not what this one flesh idea is. The, the, the one flesh idea is that you are a complete family unit if you are married, even if you don 't have any kids, and you are as close to your spouse, and even we could say closer in this one flesh union than you were with your parents before that, right or then than you will be with your children and so this this one flesh this thing that God does, joining this couple together makes them a family unit Now, I just want to very briefly touch then number three on on this is something marriage is something that God. Declares, and we'll look at this in more detail next time. But what what I just want to touch on is that marriage, as something that was designed by God and as something that He does, is was designed and and done in order to declare something about our about salvation through the gospel. Christ is is joined together with us, and we become the bride of Christ. And so marriage was designed by God to show the glory of salvation. And so that's what I meant by that question I asked at the beginning. Does your marriage tell the truth about God and the gospel? Because in, in salvation, Christ becomes like our husband and the church becomes the bride of Christ and Christ comes and he saves us when we were yet sinners. He, he loved us with this perfect love and he came to make a way in, in, in order to make us righteous and to bring us to himself. And so although we were dirty and sinful and really uh, an abomination in God's eyes because of our sin, yet because of the love of Christ, he comes to us and he takes on human flesh and he, he lives in our places, our representative, in order to save us and to cleanse us and to make us holy and righteous in his sight. And so in salvation, because we are we are joined to Christ in a spiritual union, we are now married to him and we become his body. So that we are the body of Christ. And he, in this covenant commitment to save us, he is committed to us. And he will never leave us nor forsake us, right? And and so he is, is committed to us to do us good, to love us as his bride, really until death do us part. But the good news is that Christ rose from the dead and will never die again. And so there is no separation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we as the church that has been saved by this loving husband, Jesus Christ, we come to love him and see his greatness, and we submit to him as, as a joy, and, and, and it's a privilege to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in our marriage then, as we, uh, as husbands, love their wives, and as Christ, or sorry, and as the, the brides submit to their husbands, they they show a picture of the gospel, and we'll talk about that more next time. But that's really the greatest truth about marriage. And, and then as you love your wife or as you serve your husband wives, you are showing the, the, the great gospel, the great salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. And that's really the salvation that we remember now as we come to the Lord's Supper. We remember the, this gospel that Christ paid the penalty for our sin and that through his blood, we can become and be made righteous in his sight. This is again, like I say every week, this is for all true believers at this Lord's Supper. And so if you're here with us and you're a visitor with us, if you're a a genuine follower of Christ, if you're a believer and you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you are welcome to take this. But each and every believer is also warned in Scripture not to take this in vain, that, that we're to do this and discern the Lord's body. And if we don't do that, if, if we don't discern the body of the Lord, if we don't discern that He's the one that died for our sins, it, scripture tells us that we are eating and drinking judgment on ourself. And so we're to examine ourselves, confess our sins and forsake them. But again, we celebrate what the Lord has done for us in our salvation during this time. And so let's go and we'll pray and then you'll have a few moments as the, the men hand out the elements. You'll have a few moments to meditate and confess any sins in your life to him. And just remember what it means that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you then this morning. We thank you for marriage. And we thank you for the, the amazing picture that it is of of the love of our Savior Jesus Christ for his church we thank you that in his great love for us, Jesus gave himself for us so that we could come and, and, and be your children and that we could be his bride. Lord, we pray you'd bless this time now as we meditate on what you've done for us as we confess our sins. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us of our sins and make us holy in your sight. We thank you that you do view us as holy through the gospel because of this union that we have with your son. We thank you for this in Jesus name. Amen.